Hi, this is Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Los Angeles today. I've been in Los Angeles for all of about 25 minutes, having just landed. Uh, but I'm with two folks who are from here and uh, really excited to have this conversation. One is Curtis Stone, amazing chef and very active with Share Our Strength uh, over the years and uh, has two restaurants here, Maud and Gwen. Mm-hmm. Curtis, we're thrilled to have you. Thanks so much. Nice to see you, Billy. Thanks. And Miles Cooley, uh, we've just met, but I've heard so many amazing things about you, Miles. Uh, such an inspiring story, both your personal story and some of the challenges you dealt with, uh, but also what you're doing now, particularly for foster kids um, in this state and probably having a ripple effect uh, much larger across the country. Uh, Miles Cooley, thanks for being with us. I'm delighted. Great to meet you. So, um I was with Curtis one other time. We were we did an event, Curtis, at J.C. Penney's headquarters in Plano, Texas. Right. For the, all of their employees, I guess that's their headquarters. And, gosh, there must have been, I don't know, 500 women in the audience. And Curtis and I each spoke, and Curtis was really good, and I was kind of just okay. But after the reason I know that, um, although there's, I think there's a lot of reasons that go into this, afterwards, about 490 women lined up to <laughs> say hi to Curtis, and about four men stopped and said hi to me. A dashing but, man who can cook. What more do you want? Yeah, there's nothing better than that. Um, With an Australian accent, no less. A charming Australian accent. Yeah, but, I'm actually from Detroit. I just put the accent on. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you do so many of these, you probably don't even remember, but that was no, actually that was a really a fun day. Yeah. Um, anyhow, thanks for being here. You know, one of the things that our listeners love to hear about is just kind of how people got to where they are. And we found that uh, most people have paths that zigzag a lot more than uh, at least young people anticipate. Some of the young people think you kind of go in a straight line to your career. So I'd like to just start uh, by hearing a little bit from each of you. And I know you've told your stories many times, but a little bit about, Curtis, how how'd you get to be the chef that you are today? I mean, look, goodness, I love to cook. Probably even before that, I love to eat. I've always just had this um, real passion for food. And, you know, from when I was a young kid, uh, enjoyed being in the kitchen or watching someone in the kitchen. And um, it sort of started there, I guess. I did an apprenticeship in Australia and uh, moved to London when I was 21 um, from, from Oz and Got to work for a guy named Marco Pierre White, who was mm-hmm. at the time probably one of the best chefs in the world. He was one of the best chefs in the world. He was the youngest guy in the world to win three Michelin stars. And it was my dream to go and cook for someone like that. And um, I got to London as a broke cook and, um, you know, literally uh, worked my way up his company. And, you know, I think if you if you really love what you do, you know, I, I, I always bring it back to like a grilled cheese sandwich example. I could never make a grilled cheese sandwich that wasn't perfect. The cheese would have to be melted. The outside would have to be crispy. It would have to have the right amount of butter. It, I'd, and it's not because I've been trained in making grilled cheese sandwiches. To me, that's just the right way to eat it. So, you know, it's sort of the, the right way to make it. Um, and I think if you really love what you do, then you stick at it, you know. And I, I, I guess I sort of, um, in many ways, worked my way up through a company like like Marco's. And I ended up the head chef of his uh, Michelin-starred restaurant there in London. And around what, what year was that? I'm so Time bad frame. with years. It was probably 15 years ago. So what's that, 2012? Okay, so... Yeah, yeah 2002. So, 2002. Sorry, so, 2002. So, so chefs were kind of on their way to... Actually, well on their way to becoming celebrities in their own right. And I was curious, you know, because you often get labeled uh, with the moniker of celebrity yeah. chef in addition to just being a great chef. Um, did you 
did celebrity play a factor in that early on? Is that something you thought about, or you just loved to cook because of your mom or your grandmom? Or yeah, I mean, I I started my career in '97 actually, so um, back then it was probably the uncoolest thing you could do to decide to be a chef. Really, you know, we used to wear those big silly hats and a neckerchief, and we dressed very differently. And it was back before the days of the Food Network and celebrity chefs at large, and. Um, you know, it's sort of it's funny how the industry has really changed, and I've had an interesting perspective on that because, as a chef in a restaurant, in some ways you wish there wasn't this spotlight on on our industry because people wouldn't be attracted to it for the wrong reasons. Like, I want to become famous or I want to be on a reality show, you know. Um, but the the flip side of that, of course, is there has been a, a spotlight shined on our industry and. Before, we had a declining number of apprentices coming through our system and, um, we, you know, I feel like the industry was at a real risk of becoming totally de-skilled, you know, where you sort of look to a meat packet to portion your meat for you instead of it happening in a kitchen. Um, and, and as that skill starts to leave the kitchen, it's very hard to bring it back, I think. So um, it's, it's been an interesting thing that's happened to the industry, how it sort of somehow became a part of the entertainment business for... for um, for certain elements, and uh, it's uh, you know it's it's been a, an interesting journey for sure. No, We're no. certainly eating better, thank God. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, Miles, you know, you and in ways different than Curtis, but similar, are known for a lot of things as well. Not just one thing. You're a lawyer with a very successful entertainment practice, but you've also been an advocate for empowering foster kids. Um, in the Indeed. state. And um, I've been thinking about you a lot, having read a lot about you and just had an experience in Boston. And in fact, we had on this podcast um, two young Harvard students who created a, a the first student-run shelter for homeless youth. And one of the things that they told us, and so mostly Harvard students in, in Boston and in Cambridge who managed this, staffed this shelter. But one of the things they talked about was such a high percentage of the young people that they serve had aged out of the foster system. And it was really shocking to think that in the city of Boston, I don't know what it's like in L.A., but in the city of Boston, before they created this shelter called the Y2Y Shelter, there were only 12 beds for homeless youth in the city of Boston. And young people have different needs. They sometimes don't feel as comfortable in an adult shelter. So the advocacy that you're doing seems to me to be so important at this time and so powerful. Can you talk a little bit about, I think you, first of all, had personal experience with, you know, being a foster child uh, in terms of just your own growing up. But then how did you decide to use your skills to literally share your strength to become such a champion for empowering foster youth? Well, Billy, you know, it's uh, having come from a foster care experience uh, early on in my life and, and you know, fundamentally seeing what happens you know, from personal experience about what happens when you don't have uh, support and advocacy. Um, when I finally, after I had some really important people in my life take an interest in me and sort of give me that advocacy and give me that platform, once I finally was in a position where I could think outside myself and, you know, had the wherewithal, um, it was it was a it was a foregone conclusion that I was going to be 
absolutely invested and involved in trying to help kids who'd come up like I did. So it, it, it's never really been a question. It's been about how much time do I have? I'm a, like you said, I'm a lawyer, so we bill by the hour, and sometimes it's difficult to make time. But if I don't have time, I certainly have resources. You know, I can donate to organizations, and I've been lucky to be a part of a, a several really great organizations here in L.A. and up in the Bay Area that are focused on on really giving foster kids a voice, sometimes speaking on their behalf when they can't speak for themselves. So, um, it, you know, the, the direct answer to the question is it was always something I was going to do once I got into a position. I mean, I, you know, probably even when I was a kid, I knew, probably might, you know, if I could even take a step back, fundamentally I knew that I wanted to probably, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer and be involved in a justice system. And I use that word, you know, kind of writ large um, to, to help kids. And your, your mom died at a, at when you were at a, a very young age? She um, did. And, she and did. I found her dead at age five. At age um, five. Yeah. And, and so you became um, parentless at that, at that I, point? I did. I didn't know my father till I was 20. And the asterisks and the good news is I've known him since I was 20, and, we, and I'm 47 now. We've had a, a really wonderful relationship since then. Uh, but, yeah, when my mom died, I was you know, fairly cast to the wolves. And even before then, I mean, one of the really sort of weird things is, um, in a strange way, um, getting put in the foster care system was probably a better, you know, who knows what would have happened to me if I had, that hadn't happened because... Was this in Sacramento? It was in Sacramento. That's where you were born and raised? I, uh, you know, there was a lot of neglect. So my mom, uh, my mother, um, before, you know, from the time I was born to the time she passed away was jumping on the back of motorcycles in the drugged, drugged out 70s and taken off for a year at a time. And I found out much later, and I didn't, didn't have a real memory of this, but I was passed around to a bunch of, basically a bunch of young hippies that sort of took care of me, kind of passed me around to them. Um, but, you know, you're looking at a guy who, you know, I'm wearing suits to court now, but, you know, when I was kind of in the foster care system as a really young kid, I didn't have any, you know, my teeth had kind of rotted out, my baby teeth had rotted out, and um, didn't really know how to eat with a knife and fork. I mean, it's sort of like the Tarzan movie, you know, where he, they, you know, he goes to the English manor and sort of learns how to, learns how to, what civilization is, and that's sort of what happened to me. So the neglect part, even before my mother passed, was pretty rough. Um, and then when she passed, you know, I was sort of passed around and put it, thrown into this system. Um, and the great part of my story, and it's why I think an advocate can make such a difference and why I think it's so important is uh, a school psychologist. It was her first job out of Stanford at a public school, took an interest in me. Um, her name was Leslie Cooley and uh, she's the woman I call mom now. She adopted me when I was 18, but she kept track of me my whole, my whole life, you know, from the time I was seven and uh, uh, wanted me to live with her at various phases and, and, and times. And um, I was always a little gun shy of that because she was sort of the person who was looking out for me even when I was in foster care, I was afraid if I moved in with her and I blew it with her, I wouldn't have anybody else. Um, uh, but when I got into high school and I wanted to, you know, go out and date girls and stuff, I wanted to have a platform that started looking a lot more appealing um, where I was willing to take that risk. And I'm so glad I did. And she adopted me, like I said, when I was 18. And then within, within a year, I was at Berkeley and, you know, the, sort of the rest is history. So... It's really unbelievable, isn't it? When you think about that mentoring role that people play in your life, I mean, it's just that one decision that someone makes to say, I'll give a damn about this person and I'll actually go out on a bit of a limb. My Did you have somebody like that? Well, my wife's mum was, um, she was a street kid. She was, uh, she was an orphan of the Korean War and um, 
she literally had a two-year-old brother with her. She was five or six at the time, and she walked from north to south in Korea and um, spent four or five years on the streets and uh, got adopted into an American family because she found an orphanage that took her in and she became a member of this um, orphan's choir. And it's it's crazy. Like, I look at... If it wasn't for that family that decided to adopt her, this little girl from Korea, my wife wouldn't exist and yes. I wouldn't have met her and my kids wouldn't exist. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting how that knock-on effect can happen. Now she's a big advocate for adopting. She works with Adopt Together and um, she's thrown this big... Uh, ball tomorrow night actually <laughs> with those guys and uh, it's made me very passionate about it and it's it's I think that's what's so important isn't it you can sort of you learn from somebody else's do good good doing and you, you know you're following their footsteps and try and do something um, good for the world yourself and and just the last part that's a that's an amazing story I want to I want to meet her boy. yeah um, the part about um, you know being able to give back or being able to uh, you know being interested in foster care as an issue and foster kids who went through what I, you know, I did. What inspires me now isn't so much my own story, but it's the people I'm working with now who are, you know, in the fight. I'm, a, I'm on the board of the John Burton Foundation, and I'm sure you've, mm-hmm. you've heard of John or, sure. or know John. And they're doing amazing things with Amy Lumley and, you know, on a policy level, but from a policy level to giving kids backpacks, you know, and helping individual kids with their individual needs. I was going to ask, what are the range of issues that the John Burton Foundation focuses on? I, I you know, honestly, didn't know John back in the day. Yeah, yeah. they're, they're – um, and he is something else, isn't he? He's, I think he's 81 and he's still mm-hmm. going strong. Um, really, there isn't an issue that, that touches foster care that they're not involved in. Mm. Um, you know, they're – John was making phone calls to the governor when we were trying to get this funding, you know, all the way to that, to they're opening up a facility in his honor now. Um, I think it might be tomorrow night they're dedicating it to him, a, a foster care facility. Mm-hmm. So it's the kids at Harvard you're talking about. It's yep. uh, Zaid Gale. I was on the board of, a, of Peace for Kids, which is this great organization in Watts that, you know, is really powerful in terms of their pedagogy and philosophy about empowering foster kids and food is a big part of what they do they have a, yep. a mobile truck do you know those guys in, you know? I, I know who they are yeah, yeah they're, personally. You, you've got yep. to meet them there yep. Zaid is he's I bow down to Zaid but um, so it's it's people you know like you said mm-hmm. that keep me keep me motivated and engaged and and um, you know it's it takes a village to really fight the fight well when you talk about the food component of it the thing that struck me at this Y to Y shelter was it's built the open space is built around a large kitchen and for these young people who have been kind of scraping along on, you know, whatever they could find in lots of different types of circumstances to have three meals a day that are really good meals. It's a first-rate kitchen. And, of course, you know, they're thinking now, can they do some job training in the culinary industry mm-hmm. or can they start to, you know, bring some people like you, Curtis, in that could teach some of these young people some culinary skills. So yeah. food is, you know, really central to it. It's so important. I mean, I've, I've been working with Chrysalis uh, this year, which is a local yes. organization here in L.A., um, and they try and give people, you know. That's a, the, is that a, uh, like workforce development job training correct. organization? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You can walk through their doors, and if you're straight out of prison or if you're homeless or whatever it is, and they try and get people uh, back into the workforce. And what and kind I, of work are you doing with them? Well, we, we employed our first Chrysalis employee um, four years ago. At your restaurant? At the restaurant, yeah. Wow. It's a dishwasher, a guy mm-hmm. named Daryl. He's still with us. He's now a supervisor, looks after 15 employees of his Amen, own. Amen, brother. That's great. Uh, we've had 30 employees from Chrysalis come through our doors in the restaurants um, over the last four years. And 
you know, you get to meet these guys and you, you feel like at the beginning you're like, all right, I'll do something good, I'll do something for someone else. But in actual fact, you learn so much along the way. You're the one that becomes richer from, you know, that's been my experience with any time I've ever decided to do something good. I end up, something good happens to me, you know, and, um, you know, that sort of training through through food is, uh, you know, it, it, for all intents and purposes, our business is a pretty scrappy industry still. You know, we... Yeah. We wash pots all night, and we clean grills, and we cook cook on stoves. Uh, you know, it's hot, and it's 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 a tough business, and um, it, it's sort of it's appealing, and I love it. It's been my my life, uh, but it's uh, it's there's something in there for everyone, and um, we've found some of our best employees in there. It's it's been really cool. And Curtis, did you did you anticipate that aspect of it when you started to become a chef? Because I'm guessing that you get asked to do something five times a week because you're so rooted in the community and every organization thinks if we could get a restaurant to host this or sponsor this or donate this, sure. uh, I don't know how you could even manage it or, or choose what to get involved in. And we're obviously grateful you're involved in Share Our Strength. There's so many great um, reasons to get involved. And I think, you know, the, the, the more you can spread yourself around, the better. And uh, you guys do such incredible work with Share Our Strength and you have such strong um, links to the community and it's you, you, you look at what you achieve you just had a big uh, piece of news um, this week right with yeah, uh, in ca- California just passed legislation the governor just signed it last week um, SB 138 is the bill but it basically says uh, if you qualify for Medi-Cal for the uh, you know the medical insurance that's mm-hmm. um, kind of the equivalent to Medicaid nationally then um, you're automatically enrolled in the school meals program. So to eliminate, you know, to have a kind of a one-stop certification, eliminate all the bureaucracy and paperwork, the estimates are that it will sweep 650,000 California children into that are eligible and need school lunch and school breakfast into mm-hmm. these programs. So, yeah, big, big legislative victory. It's can massive. I, and can I, I want to just say something about that because I, I remember when I, when I talked about the neglect at the, at the outset, I remember in pre, sort of kindergarten, preschool, that was the only, those were the only meals I could count on, the school lunches. I remember cherishing yep. the little boxed milk. So I, I have personal experience about how important yeah. that is to millions of kids or hundreds of thousands of kids at least. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. We don't think of the United States like that. You know, we think of it as a relatively wealthy country and, you know, we're all safe and we're all protected. But hunger's a real thing. And, you know, it wasn't until I sort of got here to the States, I started working uh, with a couple of different agencies, um, Share Our Strength, of course, one of them. And, uh, you know, once you the more you learn about it, the more shocking that the facts are and um, the more that needs to be done. So, yeah. Just, just to digress for a second, Curtis, uh, do these kinds of issues exist in the same way in Australia? You're from Melbourne, right? I am, do yeah. Do they exist in the same way in, in large cities in Australia? Uh, they do, yeah. I think probably to a lesser extent, if I'm being brutally honest. I think uh, we have probably a more uh the government play a bigger role? Yeah, mm-hmm. socialist mm-hmm. sort of view on, on government. Mm-hmm. Um, the, our minimum wage is much higher than it is here. I think it's, I'll probably get this wrong, but I think it's up around $18 an hour um, nationally. And yeah, the cost of living is still pretty reasonable. We have, I would imagine, um, uh, a lot more people enrolled in healthcare. Well, healthcare is free yeah. uh, in Australia. So yeah, so you have a lot more people enrolled. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's yeah. I, Unbelievable. I, I think it's um, We're fighting for that. 
we don't have as big a disparity in the distribution of income and wealth. I remember studying economics at school and we had three topics, employment, inflation and the distribution of income and wealth. And as a 17-year-old Aussie kid, I thought, what a stupid third topic. You know, employment's clearly very important and inflation, well, that's what the economy sort of hinges on. But the distribution of income and wealth, why is that? carry equal weight to those other right. two really big things. And then I travelled to Europe when I was um, 19 or 20 and I can remember seeing the, how rich the rich were and how poor the poor were and I can remember thinking, my goodness, it's it's something from an Australian perspective, we need to hold on to that distribution of income and wealth and not have it so crazy. And, you know, high tax rates are an important thing. You know, it's... Um, or, or Look, there's lots of debate over all sorts of stuff, but the more even that we can try and it's it's what we should strive for as a community, never alone as individuals, but as a community, I think we should try and um, have it as fair as we possibly can, right? Well, Miles, you see probably in your world these disparities and hmm. sometimes probably almost on a daily basis. Tell us a little bit about your law practice because I know that you represent some you know very significant folks in the entertainment industry. Sure. Uh, and so... You know, there's obviously a lifestyle there, but at the same time, you're so dedicated to working with these foster kids who live in a, you know, completely different situation. How do you, how do you, how do you navigate that? But start by telling us a little bit about your your work sure, as a lawyer. Sure. Yeah, I've, the law's been pretty good to me in terms of the kinds of clients I have, and um, I've had the opportunity to work for, you know, a lot of pretty high net worth people who also, you know, who got that wealth by being talented, you know, entertainers of some form or other, and. Um, so a large part of my practice is servicing, you know, world famous kind of celebrities, stars, um, in the mostly in the music space, but in other space, you know, in other areas also. And um, you know, the good news is is that I work hard. I help set up the found, you know, Rihanna's foundation, for example, and she just got an award from Harvard for her yeah. foundational work. So I feel good about that. And and what's her what's her foundation focused on mostly? It's the Clara Lionel Foundation, named after her grandmother, and. Um, she, you know, her first big project was to get uh, a bunch of oncology machines uh, in Bar- the Barbados Hospital. Um, and, you know, it was a wonderful deal to do and a great thing that they did. And, and now it's mostly, it's involved in, in still in doing that, but also focused on kids and, you know, at-risk kids around the world. So you're able to use your legal skills, not just to deal with uh, some of their, you know, business legal issues, but to actually help with their, structure their philanthropy, so to speak, which, uh, and again, based on your own personal experience, that must be both motivating for you and they must trust you implicitly that you're going to think about the best way to structure that. Exactly. And and I was in the Peace Corps between undergraduate school and law school. And um, so I have a big sort of big, huge space in my heart for development work. Where did you serve? And uh, I was in Ecuador. Oh, in Ecuador. Um, mm-hmm. I was a, mm-hmm. in, a, in the northwest coast. It was an Afro-Ecuadorian province, so it was just a super, really, super amazing cultural experience. Um, but it kind of comes full circle when uh, uh, to be uh, I, uh, shall remain unnamed L.A. Charger is I'm helping him with his foundation. One of the things he wants to do is he wants to open, uh, do some work in Haiti, mm-hmm. develop effectively, do you know, become an NGO in Haiti. And so it's fun because I get to bring some of that Peace Corps, old Peace Corps volunteer stuff uh, you know, dust that off and put it to use, um, but also do it in the form, you know, of, of the legal practice. So, um, but, you know, really it's about, you know, I mean, I, with respect to income inequality and, 
You know, I mean, I think people are people fundamentally and, you know, trying to get people that you're working with to see that they, they can make a big impact, you know, as a part of what I do, I think, um, you know, and I feel like I couldn't live with myself, frankly, if I just you know, lived in a kind of a hermetically sealed luxury bubble of kind of L.A. entertainment or whatever it is and didn't do stuff to give back. So there's never been a question that that's that's got to be part of what, you know, and and, you know, luckily, I think most a lot of people in this town are, you know, are conscious and really want to, yeah. you know, they want to do, you know, hearing Curtis is terrific. You know, I mean, I certainly want to start supporting your restaurants because it <laughs> sounds like you're, you're busy doing all kinds of other great things Wait. even outside of your business. I was just kind of on the cusp of asking you, Curtis, do your customers know about, I mean, you also see both sides of the world, um, right. kind of top to bottom. And do your customers know what you do? Is it important to you that they know what you do? I probably for them, the most important thing is I'm going to get a great meal here. I've heard this guy can really cook and I want to try to get into, you know, Maud or Gwen and experience that. But, um, but not all of them probably know as much about your civic engagement, your community work as we do. And so, is that something you want them to know, or do you just, you know, what I mean, do you want look, them to take away from the experience? Yeah, it's something we've uh, we've been doing for some years, and this this last year we've been talking a little bit more about it because you know I've sort of had such a strong experience, and you know some really amazing things have come out of that work too. You know what we've found is all of the guys that we've had from Chrysalis, um, you know, and of course it's scary when you first begin that process. You you ask yourself. Do I want to employ someone that has a criminal record? Is am I endangering my staff? Is that you know? Is it okay? Is it not okay? I've been programmed to think that you need to run back, background checks on on people that you're potentially bringing into your company, um, and this is the absolute opposite. You, you know, there's no point doing the background check because you know what the background's going to look like in in many cases. So, um, but our staff retention, which is a big thing that we struggle with in the restaurant business is twice as good from our chrysalis employees than our non-chrysalis employees. And what we've found is those employees have been super grateful for the opportunity of a job, you know, and to, they're proud to wear a uniform and they're grateful to have family meal cooked for them once a day. And um, some really simple uh, things that we do do in the business that they've appreciated. So I have wanted to spread that word throughout the industry and I had a, a, a big lunch this, this year and invited a bunch of, you know, industry leaders in the restaurant space and shared my story with them and sort of said, you know, at the end of the day, there's something in it for you as a restaurant operator. And of course, there's something in it from, you know, just being a good human being and, and sort of reaching out to, to our, our fellow human humans out there and giving someone else another another chance. It's really a sec second chance that most of these guys really crave and want to want to have a go at. And my experience has been really wonderful. And, and since we had that lunch, there's probably seven or eight of the people that came to the lunch that have gone on to um, uh, go on their journey with, you know, starting employment with, with those guys. And I know that that'll keep uh, snowballing because because of the experience that we've had. So. Now, now, Miles, in your work, your firm is called Kelly Dry, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I pronounced right, Kelly right. Dry. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do a significant amount of pro bono work as well. Uh, I imagine somebody like you has pushed the firm as far as you can to do as much of it as you can, but are there ways that that's good for the firm as well? Are you kidding? I mean, as just as an example, um, I'm on the board, the national board of an organization called the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and we do lots of work for them. 
and um, they're doing a lot right now in the area of civil rights. And it's been great to have our lawyers and you know private lawyers around. You know, and it's an organization that was started in 1963 by John F. Kennedy in the effort to dismantle Jim Crow in the South. And he said, hey, you know, the, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department can do a lot, but where are the private lawyers? And he convened everybody to the White House and, he, and you know, the leaders of all the private firms and said, you guys need to get to work and do pro bono work to, to help us with this effort. So the Lawyers Committee has been around a long time. It's a great organization. And um, we've been very active since last November, or you know, since January, um, doing, doing things to protect the civil rights of Americans. And it's, a, it's just been a fantastic thing to see pleadings go out that, you know, have our, our, our logo on it because we're yeah. involved in the fight. So absolutely. And, and probably attracts talent to your firm. No, it, it attracts I'm sure talent. I'm sure and, you've inspired a lot of And all the best, you know, the, we're, we're standing shoulder to shoulder with the best lawyers and clients. You know, clients really like to, you know, I do a, I've since 2000, I'm sorry, yeah, 2004, I've run election protection here in Southern California, which is basically, you know, a, there's a bunch of court, um, organizations that are involved in putting it on, but basically it's a call-in center, a hotline on election day before, during, and after election day to help people get to the polls and help people sort of, you know, report any issues. If you see on. any fraud or abuse or anything like yeah, that, anything, you can call. You can and, call and it's called it election protection. Election protection, yeah. And, and so since 2004, I've been involved in sort of one of the leaders of doing it here in Southern California. And, you know, since 2004, we've had a lot of my clients come and send their legal departments, you know, corporation client, corporate clients, they'll sit and staff the phones. And it's a great way to, you know, create your, you know, strengthen your relationship with clients to get them involved in stuff like that as well. It's really cool. Um, I want to come back to your story, Miles, because I, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. Um, but are you an exception to the rule in the foster care system? Um, or, or, or are you more the rule in terms of the outcomes that we can expect for, you know, you, you don't hear a lot of really great yeah. stories of, of young people who have come out of foster care. And yeah. to the extent that your exception, was it, uh, was it um, the, uh, your, your mom, uh, your foster mom, Cooley, right? Your Miles Cooley, you got your name from her. Was it her? Was it a series of uh, just fortunate breaks? What turned the, the corner for you? I like to tell my, I like to say that I'm the luckiest unlucky guy I've ever met. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I certainly have had so many different good breaks. Um, and you have to look, you know, whether I'm a super sort of officially religious person or not, I can't look at my own life and not think that there's been sort of a power involved in it, uh, that's been bigger than me and, and looking out for me. Um, and that's, you know, that's from various teachers I've had. That's from, different breaks I've had, you know, Leslie Cooley being sort of the seminal or most important, uh, you know, lucky break. Um, but, you know, the metrics are not good for foster kids. I mean, particularly, you know, I, I've studied California more than around the country, but I mean, you know, the, the, the incarceration rates, the homelessness rates, the, you know, like the kid, like you were talking about, the kids were telling you from Harvard about mm -hmm. the kids they see, you know, the drug abuse, you know, the graduation rates, all those numbers are are abysmal for kids that are coming out of foster care. And one of the things that's just, and I think this is sort of a rage for justice that I have that, you know, that I've had since I was a kid probably is how can we in a civil society, you know, allow, in a wealthy society the way that Curtis talks about, allow that to happen and to know that the outcomes are so bad, but, but 
you know, not a, at least as a governmental, you know, uh, effort, do more um, and make sure that the outcomes are better. And so, you know, it, 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 it puts the burden and the onus of trying to make it better on private people because our, our government just doesn't do it or there's not the, you know, it's, it's not being done. There are some select good people in government, but it's not sort of the kind of effort that I'd like to see. And I think, you know, I think people that have come from the situations that, you know, the, those abysmal things that have made it or, or, you know, made it in quotes maybe, but who have who've come through, um, you know, we need to look back and, and help. And, and so I'm, I'm, I feel honored to be able to do that. And I do a lot of speaking and mm-hmm. do a lot of, you know, individual mentoring and and I think, you know, if we all do that the way Curtis says, I mean, it's, it's only given back, you know, incredible blessings back, back, back to me. Miles, in, in terms of the most impactful ways that, that the average person can make a difference, um, and particularly on the issue of foster youth, because there are so many things about that issue that are, that are frankly unique, so many challenges that foster kids have that, you know, a lot of other kids don't. Um, are there some organizations that you're involved in that we should know about and understand better? Are there other ways to, to make that impact? There's some, there, you know, we're lucky. I think there's an abundance of really great organizations that are doing a lot of good things for foster kids here in L.A., but the ones that are closest and dearest to my heart, largely because they're the ones I've worked on and know the best, but I, by no means do I mean to exclude anybody because I think there's a lot of good ones out there. Uh, First Star is a really great organization. First Star. First Star, started by a guy named Peter Samuelson, Hollywood producer who I think now doesn't do that anymore. I think he just does First Star. But basically it's an educational resource for foster kids um, housed on campuses around the country. So there's one at UCLA that I've gone and spoke at and hung out with the kids. They help kids with their college applications. They see them weekly, monthly, and then during the summer they actually live on UCLA campus and other campuses around the country um, for I think a month and it's all in, you know, really hyper-focused educational stuff. So I think that's really important. Um, and they're looking for volunteers, and there's a really great cadre of volunteers. And these kids are terrific, and they're getting into great universities and going off and breaking cycles. So it's a, it's, there's proven results there. Peace for Kids, the one that I mentioned, Zaid Gale, is a, he is a, you know, if he doesn't walk on water, he will soon. He is just an incredible guy. Um, and they have this really incredible... Um, program down um, in Watts, based out of the Watts Willowbrook Boys and Girls Club, but they also have a mobile kitchen where they basically are teaching kids how to cook and they're, they're you know, going to events and using that to raise money for the organization. And then the, uh, the last one that I think is, you know, I think, you know, it's more of a policy organization. It's the John Burton Foundation. And yep. they're, they're both in Northern and Southern California, but they're headquartered up in San Francisco. But they're looking for volunteers as well. Uh, and they're doing everything from high-level policy lobbying to needing donations to put pencils in kids' backpacks who are going to going to. So those are three that I really love. I think the last, well, two two last things I want to ask each of you. One is, you're both pretty media savvy, Curtis. You've done TV work. A lot of folks know you that way. You've got a great uh, cookbook, uh, Curtis Stone: Good Food, Good Life. Did I get that right? <laughs> you did. Great I'm book. And, uh, of course, Miles, you're in, you know, the entertainment uh, business in a way through, through your legal work. Um, are there ways that we should be thinking for those of us who are passionate about outcomes for kids, whether it's hunger, homelessness, foster youth, uh, job training, are there ways that we could be 
mobilizing and uh, leveraging the entertainment in the media world. One of the things that that uh, kind of obsesses me, actually, after doing this work for 33 years, is there's still a lot of people that, you know, we talked about how many foster youth there are in the state. They'd be, they'd be shocked. A lot of people mm-hmm. would be shocked. You talk about how many hungry kids there are in our public schools. People are shocked. When they hear it, they want to do something about it, right? That's just, that's the doorway that they've got to get through. But not enough people know it, and so we need the media to help us. Any thoughts on creative ways that we can use um, the media? Good question. Um, look, I think there's there's all sorts of ways. You know, that there's so many different television shows and different ways for us to sort of uh, develop around that. And then it can also be really grassroots too. You know, I'm, I'm a father of two young boys and um, I, I, my oldest son Hudson's just started at a school and every Friday uh, they encourage the families to drop off cans of food for, for the local food bank. And um, I know not every school does that, but you know what, if you're a parent at a school, you can go and have a conversation with the principal and say, hey, listen, I've got an idea. Not only does, yes, of course, it gives donations to the local food bank and all food banks, I'm sure, will open open their arms widely when someone says we can we can deliver you some food. But it starts really young in, in the minds of uh, young kids that, you know, thoughtfulness and, um, you know, a, a broader... Uh, um, attitude of there's something bigger than me out there and sometimes you know other people might need your help um, that's really important to teach young kids I think and um, you, you, but absolutely I've just hosted a show called Top Chef Junior which is targeted targeted as, as young kids and as we're as I'm sort of sitting here talking to you I think I'll go back and speak to the producers and say well what can we do what, what which episode can we make our, our charity episode where we can give back and we can shine a light on oh, I love that idea. Um, something really special Miles what do you think yeah, I just think there are myriad ways. Um, you know, the show, uh, The Fosters, is a good example of, mm-hmm. of how the you know, Hollywood is doing their part. Uh, I know David Ambrose, who's a former foster kid who we met at an awards thing for First Star, actually. You know, he's behind pushing. He, he's at ABC, and he's behind pushing, you know, content. Um, but I think, you know, the digital age, too, the the... The, the, the ability to use digital platforms to reach people, to educate people. Um, I think, you know, we've got to figure out a way to really leverage that because I'm realizing as I, my clients get younger and younger and more and more successful and I get older and older and lose my hair and realize that they're in this whole world around, you know, these digital platforms that are so impactful. I think the future really has to be how to get that information in front of, of, yeah. of that, those demographics that way. And um, I think a lot of people out there are thinking about those things. So, Curtis, maybe we give Miles a pass on the bike ride if he agrees to do our legal work, structuring our, our media platform for some of these issues. I love Can it. we take that deal? I, no, I, Although I, think I, you, I you might, might do the bike ride, too. You might be the more fit of all yeah. three of us here. I so. like the bike ride. <laughs> uh, tell me, as we wrap up, tell me what's next for each of you. Uh, or two restaurants, enough, Curtis. Um, you're a pretty busy guy between restaurants and books and TV, but what, what do you, what's in your future? Uh, two restaurants is certainly enough. It's, it's <laughs> potentially too much. Um, you know, I think it's certainly enough for now. Uh, we've got uh, Gwen, which has only been open a year, so we're, that's still, you know, it takes a minute for restaurants to sort of settle into themselves, and we've been working really hard at it. My brother moved over here from, from Australia nice. uh, to do that restaurant with me, so I'm enjoying being close to his family again. That's uh, very cool. Since they moved over, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, so, yeah, t- no more restaurants for just now. I just did it. I'm, 
doing a show called A Movable Feast on PBS, so that's sort of keeping me travelling around a little bit, which is which is good fun. That sounds like fun. What? How does the show work? What's the What's it look like? We go to different parts of um, the country or the world, in fact, and and meet. Uh, food producers and other chefs, and um, just sort of explore a region through its through its sort of culinary um, prowess, and and then cook a dinner at the end of it all. Well, if you ever need anybody to sub for yeah, you, you're, awesome. you're, you're ever homesick or something, Miles, like Miles and I can I go go take a day and do that. It's pretty good. Fun. Um, how about you, Miles? What's next? You know, I've got a two year old, uh, Enzo, and his mom and I are super busy with him and uh, chasing him around and and That'll really enjoying you know enjoying that, and so that's. You know, the law practice will be there, and I'm working hard at that, and the charitable work is there. But my main focus is my little guy. And um, and where it should be, right? If I mean, if, if all our kids turn out well, some of these problems will address themselves. Um, last thing, tell us the websites that we should pay attention to, both for – is it chrysalis.org? Is, is, is that a good one? It sure is. Um, Really amazing. They they literally change people's lives through jobs, and we've had such a wonderful experience with them as a company and uh, helping them hopefully grow. And, and uh, you know, every, every dollar they receive is amazing, and every every employer that's prepared to give one of their clients a job is even better. So Good. check and them out. Miles Cooley, what's the best uh, website for the organizations uh, that you're on the org. Peaceforkids.org, and that has its peace for the num- numeral kids. Okay. And uh, John Burton Advocates for Youth.org. So. Excellent. Well, thank you both for what you're doing. You know, and the and what I love about this conversation is it comes from such an authentic place for both of you, as you talked about earlier, having some personal experience, whether it was your own or somebody in the family, that gave you a sense of like I should be, you know, investing in others the way they invested in me. Uh, I'm sure that has a lot to do with the incredible success that you both both enjoyed. So, Miles Cooley. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Los Angeles. Thank you for being with us. So great to be here. And keep up the wonderful work for our strength. It's such a terrific organization. Uh, And Curtis Stone uh, here in Los Angeles, the restaurants, Gwen, Maud, um, thank you for being part of Share Our Strength all these years, and it's just a, really a treat to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. It's a, a privilege to be a part of it, so thank you. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength. <laughs>